Nosy Nancy's is a true crime podcast based in Austin, Texas. If you are sensitive to any of the trigger words, this is not the podcast for you. Due to its graphic nature, listener discretion is advised. Hey, all you nosies. I'm Aliqua. And I'm Jasmine. And welcome to Nosy Nancy's Season 2, Episode 6. Six. Man, I, um, it took me all week to edit that last episode. And, uh, and then, I'm sorry, but the very ending where we, where we usually say goodbye, like, cut off. I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened either. I'm wondering And I'm not taking the blame. No, it probably was me. I probably, like, deleted it during my editing, you know. But here's the thing is, I don't mind leaving our our listeners wanting more. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? You always gotta gotta leave them wanting more. For real. We gotta, like, play a little hard to get. Otherwise, are they gonna keep coming back? Probably not. It's just psychology. It's true. Yeah. Manipulation 101. (laughs) (laughs) So you've had a pretty busy week. I have had a pretty busy week. My work, we work, you know, on Saturdays throughout the holidays, which is fine, but it's like from 10 to 4. So it's like the better part of an entire day. So I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm like shackled to the office. I feel like I never see my little Todd. Even oh. though even though we see each other every day. Even though, you, yeah, you live together. Yeah. So I'm just like, God, I miss Todd so much. And then just like last night we went to um, a friend's Christmas party. And after Thanksgiving, I told Todd, I'm going to cut myself off. So I had like a few shots and like a couple of beers. And then I was like, I'm not doing anything else. But I fell out of like their back door what? I like felt well. I stumbled because there's like a drop off that I guess like I thought I had, but I didn't. So I like <laughs> fell, and it's so stupid. Like I fell oh, no. backwards. So like I landed on my butt with like both of my feet touching the ground. Somehow, like bruised the top of my left foot, like it's swollen, and it doesn't look bruised. It just is swollen, and like I can't walk around. <laughs> like I can't walk around now. But right now, it takes me like three minutes to walk from the living room to like the bedroom because I'm hobbling around like some old lady living in the woods. I mean, I know I'm not a physicist or a or a doctor, or really anything, but it's, you, you would think that if you fell on your ass, your ass would be swollen and hurt. I know, like, what the your... fuck happened to my foot? And then uh, we get home later, and, like, on the opposite ankle, I'm like, there's blood there, and I'm like, what the fuck <laughs> did I do? Oh my god, maybe you should just live in the woods. Maybe it's safer there for I you. I know, I guess so. This All this fucking cement is too dangerous for me it's too dangerous and i'm looking up like how like what do you do for a bruised foot and it's like oh it's a common sports injury and i'm like god i'm so fat that when i'm falling it's considered a sports injury (laughs) us just walking is considered a sport seriously my heart rate is out of control (laughs) yeah it's true i'm very sporty i'm very sporty when i'm falling no, if we were the Spice Girls, you would be Sporty Spice for sure. It's true. Old Mel C. Well, I look, I don't know about you, but I have a lot to talk about this episode as far as like our, the case goes. So maybe we should just get into it. Oh, okay. Well, we'll just, we'll just move right along. So yeah, are you going first love... or me? No, you go ahead and go first. Okay. Yeah. Not that you don't love... The Spice Girls, which clearly I was say, uh, not that I... you're not as much of an avid fan as me. 
Yeah, but, how many okay. posters do you have? Yeah, I used to have a lot. I was really into the Spice Girls. I didn't realize that you weren't. Well, I mean, no. I, you know, I was more into, like, No Doubt and Gwen, you know, Gwen Stefani and, like, Garbage. I mean, I was know. into that shit, too, but, like, later on when it was popular. Well, but I'm, like, how many years older am I than you? Like, four? So you gotta think, like, by the time the Spice Girls were, like, big, I was already, like, basically in I was in junior high okay 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 you old and, woman <laughs> okay yeah who's the old four woman years out di- living in the woods now four you years difference <laughs> I know what we might as well just do is just is just end it all and like live in the woods as bog witches oh my god Honestly. yes if Todd can come I'm totally down yeah, no, Todd can be our little, he can, like, go forage for us, find our newts and our toads and our, you know, whatever, raven claws, whatever witchy whatever we things. Need. He can be our little uh, warlock. He yeah, he could, be our, he could be our yearly sacrifice yeah. to the old gods. Yeah. Uh, what? Anyways. <laughs> so what do you, that poor Todd, he's, like, out of here. <laughs> Let's let's get into this. Let's get into the case. Okay, well, mine's yeah, get into the case. so fucking frustrating. Um, honestly, looking into this really made me pissed off. Everybody's already irritated. We got tinsel in our hair and and lights in our eyes. Yeah, just, ugh. ugh, hate it. I hate Christmas. Hate it. I'm kidding. I love I hate Christmas. It. I do too. Actually, secretly, I love Christmas. <laughs> Okay, so on Sunday, May 22nd, 1983, at around 9.30 a.m., a group of softball players found the body of Esther Broberg, who was 35 years old. Um, she was only about three miles from her home in Gibbons Park. Where's uh, Gibbons Park at? God damn it. Hang I'll on. I'll look. Let me, let me look. Let me look. Okay. So, Gibbons Park is... Around East 12th Street. Oh, okay. Uh, she was found pretty close to the to the swimming pool near the park's pool. She had been stabbed mm. eleven times in her neck, cheek, back, and her buttocks. Jesus, and Christ. she had what also. Is up with that? I know what the fuck. She had also been God. run over. <gasps> Um, and she was found naked. Her clothes were found, like, around her body, and she had been raped. Oh. Uh, the autopsy... Terrible. I know. The autopsy, uh, concluded that she had bled to death within ten minutes from her stab wounds, and that she roughly had been killed less than two hours before she was found. So what this would have been, yeah, this would have been around like 7.30 or 7 in the morning. Another, um, uh, like, and in, and in May, that's, that's like, you know, that's, that's daylight time, I think. Yeah, I think so. so. Like, these, like, our last cases, these people were doing things in broad day. Yeah. Daylight with the apartment managers. It's like, these, these motherfuckers are bold. Exactly. Like, what the fuck? What was she doing that early? Like, was she, like, going to school? Was she walking to work? So, the evening before her murder, what police kind of started piecing together was that Esther had had dinner on Saturday with her ex-husband, Roy Broberg, who was 61 years old. Now, her and Roy had been together. Obviously, they were married before Um, and they divorced and he ended up having like a motorcycle. Sorry. It was a car accident. Okay. So he ended up having some serious injuries from a car accident and Esther had moved back in with him to take care of them. And they kind of were rekindling things and they were actually planning to get remarried. Um, Hmm. so I, well, yeah. Uh, but, but, so she had had dinner on Saturday with, with him, um, and he dropped her off, he said, between, like, 10 or 10.30, 10 
at the East Austin Tavern to meet with some friends of hers. Mm. She then went from the tavern to Ernie's Chicken Shack, which, is that still around? I don't think so. I've never heard of it, at least. I, I love chicken. I think I would have known. I wonder where, yeah, I wonder where that is now. I'm trying to see. I don't think it's there anymore. Oh, Weberville. Well, this particular location that she went to, I think was pretty close to Givens Park because she went, so her and her friends went to Ernie's Chicken Shack around like 2 a.m. Because it was like a late night bar. And then right. at around 5.30, her friends last saw her, like, walking in the direction of Givens Park. So around, like, 5.30 is when she was, I guess, so going to so go So she was home. walking home early in the morning. She was actually oh. supposed to call Roy, her ex-husband, for, for a ride home, and, and she never called. Oh, God. But the people who she was out with that that night were her longtime friend Paula Fallon, who has passed away since then. Paula's brother Jose Reyes, remember that mm-hmm. name? Okay. Um, and Paula's son Robert Reyes, and one of All Robert's right. friends, Fernando Estrada. Uh, so Jose Reyes was around like thirty-five. Robert Reyes, her son, her friend's Paula's son, son, was 18. And then Robert's friend, Fernando, was 20 years old. They they all left Ernie's around the same time, is what, okay. is what the police were told. Okay. Originally. Right. So on June 9th, a, a few weeks after the murder, Jose Reyes came out to the police and told his version... Of the events that took place. In a signed affidavit, Jose said that they left Ernie's with his nephew Robert and Fernando. Right. They, they found Esther and forced her into Fernando's 1976 blue Lincoln sedan before driving her to Givens Park, where the three men took turns holding her down and raping her. <gasps> So he confessed to it? He confessed. Uh, Reyes alleged that Esther did fight back. So Robert Reyes cut Esther's throat. And that Estrada, Fernando Estrada, like, cut her stomach. Um, The three then got back in the car and Fernando ran her over. All three of them were charged... uh, with capital murder, but the charges against Fernando Estrada and Robert Reyes were dropped because there really was no evidence that they were there. And right. in Texas law, there's actually a law where a person can't be con- convicted of a crime just based on the statements of, of a co-conspirator. So they couldn't hold Estrada or Reyes. Um, so they Uh-oh. just decided to pursue Jose in 1984, a state district judge ordered a psychologist and a psychiatrist to examine Jose Reyes, and both found that he was incompetent to stand trial and believed that he was unlikely that he, he would ever become confident, comp, confident, confident. <laughs> that he would ever <laughs> become competent in the future. I'm sure his confidence was through the roof, but right. his competency was lacking. What the fuck? So some of the things that both the psychologist and the psychiatrist said about Jose Reyes was that he didn't have the mental ability to waive his constitutional rights before he spoke with the police. His IQ was 51. He couldn't add four plus five or remember four numbers spoken to him. Um. Uh. And then based on that testimony, a jury agreed that he was not competent to stand trial. To me, that sounds like he probably would be easily swayed to do something, too. I mean, that's true. But, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, now, this now this is Jose. He's the older one. He was the 35-year-old? Yeah, Jose was the 35-year-old brother of Esther's friend, Paula. 
And this is the guy that they found was incompetent. Yes. This is the guy who confessed, and they found him incompetent. So the prosecution and um, the court-ordered psychiatrist pushed for (laughs) institutionalization (laughs) uh, for Jose. But a second jury came in and decided that, no, he's able to function in the community. Like, he doesn't need to be institutionalized. Um, And he was deemed not a danger to himself or to others. So the murder charge against him was dismissed in 1985. Yes. And he was allowed to be back among society with people. Following the dismissal of the murder charge, Jose, who was living with his mom around the corner from Givens Park, um, ended up moving in with his sister and her husband uh, when their mom passed away in 1990. So his sister and her husband kind of helped watch over him and make sure that he was okay. Uh, He actually was blind in one eye. He had had like an injury from a bow and arrow accident. Oh my God. So he already was blind in one eye, but he started losing sight in the other eye. Um, He was semi-self-sufficient, but, I mean, he he was a little slow. Right, Um, right. Well, it just makes me wonder because, you know, with the case of, like, um, the confession killer, I forget his name, like, the police, like, really pushed him to, like, confess to all these crimes that he didn't actually do. Right. And if somebody was, like... That had that low of an IQ, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they knew that he was with her at at some point at the night, you know? Yeah. Like, they probably could have pushed him to, to confess to something that he actually didn't really do. True. I don't know. But you're about to feel differently. Okay. Everybody kind of was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, Jose's, he's very, like slow he's very tender we all love him we're all taking care of him in 1996 jose was indicted on two separate charges of indecency with a child by contact both of his nieces one was eight and the other was under 17 at the time had uh told police that they were fondled by jose in separate incidents the charges were again dismissed when he was found what incompetent to stand trial. And they even kept him at the sister's house where the nieces were. Are you joking me? This is, oh my God. Why would you even do that? I know. Why would, why would you keep him? Why, why would he be allowed to stay in the same fucking Oh, my God. So, he confessed to Esther's murder, confessed to raping her, confessed to stabbing her. He implicated the other two, but obviously they couldn't do anything. Right. He's found incompetent, and they just release him. No No institutions or anything. Then there's this issue with the nieces. He's found incompetent again. And again, they're saying like, no, he's fine. He doesn't need to be institutionalized. No, he does. In fact, (laughs) send him back to the house where these girls are. Yeah, that's, I don't, that would not fly now. And I mean, like that wasn't like, there's no way that people would let that happen now. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, yeah, what? with it being in 1996, I mean, it still hits a little close to home because it's like, come on. I yeah, mean, really? No. Come on. Yeah, right. God, <sighs> that is frustrating. What the fuck? I, look, I don't have children, but, like, if somebody did that to my niece or nephew, like, I, I'd be going to prison because that motherfucker would be strung up behind my car, I'll tell you that. Honestly, like, I could not even imagine being a parent right now. I was telling Todd, like, we're on, I don't know if you're on Nextdoor. 
but yeah, I used to. Are be. you? Yeah, yeah. So someone had posted like that a sex offender had moved to our area, and I was like, oh, interesting. And I like created an account on the little website just to see who's around. Every single person, child pornography charge, indecency with a child, like they're oh. all related to children, and it's like God. Listening to a podcast um, about the this like huge um, underground like child child sex ring mm -hmm. that they busted in the um, early two thousands. Um, it was based in Australia. And the detective, the lead detective at the time of that of that bust was like talking about how, you know, now with with the age of technology, it's it's a lot more dangerous for children. It's well Hell yeah. It's it's, it's like, yeah, the field the field has changed, right? The like back in the eighties, you know, people were afraid of being picked up by somebody, you know, just in a car and that did happen. But like right. the chances of you coming across a predator like that in like with your children in, in, in society was a lot lower. Yeah. Whereas if your child is on the internet now, their chances of crossing a predator on the internet is like a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. No, the, the percentage is insane. Yeah. So it's so, it's crazy how many people like and how much access we give you know these predators um to you know to our children exactly you know my my brother and my sister-in-law they don't they don't put any pictures up of their of their girls my nieces mm -hmm. not only because of like the you know you never you don't know who's looking at who's looking at the pictures right and in itself that's kind of creepy right but also because they're the as a child under the age of you know 12 or 10 you can't give your consent to having your picture on the internet you know right. what i mean yeah so, makes complete and, sense because it is right. it's it's fucking dangerous like it is dangerous and so you really have, like, as somebody who doesn't have children, like, I don't ever think about that. Like, I yeah. post pictures of my dogs all the time, you know yeah. what I mean? But, like, so you're right. Like, I couldn't imagine being a parent either. Like, my kid would have no internet devices. Yeah. We're, we're going back to the 1800s, yeah. okay? We're living that Amish lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. Do not talk to anybody that isn't me. That's That's how I would be. <laughs> Because yeah. it's really, like, if you, if you have children, like, you really do, you have to protect them. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. That's your That's number your one job. priority. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Who can you like, trust? Like, you're, you, literally nobody. And, like, I don't know if you heard of that teacher. There was a teacher who, like, made cupcakes with her husband's semen in them. Ew! For, what? like, a bake sale. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Also, I feel like that's a super huge health hazard. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, you're not wrong, but I wasn't like, ew. I was never like, ew, how unhealthy. <laughs> I was like, what a sick bitch. I'm like, this is not FDA. <laughs> like, this, the, like this, there, yeah, there's going to be some lawsuits there. Yeah. Uh, gross man Ugh. there was that story about the teacher who had a sexual relationship and fell in love supposedly with her 12 year old student and had and had his kids oh mary kay Letourneau or whatever yes yeah no, and they're and like, still together i'm pretty sure no no she's dead she died is she really oh yeah she had they got so they got married then she, they got divorced then she died of breast cancer oh I remember seeing some ad that was like a Van Halen night and it was like hot for teacher and she was going to be like the, oh the star of the show. That's what I'm saying. Like, that's gross. That yeah. we're like idolizing that kind of stuff. And like, ugh, I don't know. That was a big, that was a big rant. We just went in, we went into. I know people are sick and disgusting. So let's talk Moral more of the about story. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's talk more about it. Um, so at this point in time, Esther's case had kind of gone cold. And it was resurrected um, by 
APD whenever the breaks in technology finally came. And unfortunately, they were handwriting a bunch of shit for Esther's case, and so all the shit that was kept on paper was lost. Oh. Um, but there so were, I know, there were semen and blood samples that were retested. Oh, good. From uh, Estrada's car. So okay. they were found in Estrada's car. Two male DNA profiles were identified. And the evidence positively connected Jose Reyes as someone who was involved in the crime. So he oh. did do it. Is he still alive? He is still alive. Oh. He is in Mexia. Mexia. It's near Waco. Oh, everything is near Waco. I swear to God. Okay, I see. Yeah, it's in between Palestine and Waco. Yeah. Who knows what he's fucking doing there? That's a small-ass town. Um, so Estrada had long claimed that he wasn't there that night, he didn't know Esther, and that he was fos- falsely accused. Robert Reyes had been in and out of prison like since basically 1990 on drug and burglary charges, but neither DNA matched any evidence. So there, yeah, right. So there was new, no new evidence for Robert Reyes or Fernando Estrada, um, but there was that positive link to Jose Reyes. So in September hmm. of two thousand six, the charges were refiled against Jose Reyes, who was fifty eight years old. He again confessed in participating in Esther's rape and murder. What the fuck, dude? He's a, he's confessed twice now to this yes. rape and murder. And he was once again in 2007 found incompetent to stand trial. No. Yeah. If I look, if I was the family of of Esther, I would be so fucking mad. Like I know. this is infuriating. Yeah. This guy needs to be put in prison. And you know what? How do you even know he wasn't faking, like, not knowing what five plus four Yeah, is? exactly. Like, I, I mean, I'm not, like, super duper smart, but I would know enough to sit there and be like, oh, I, I don't know how to spell my name. You know, like, it's very easy to act stupid. Um, so they finally pushed to have him institutionalized in 2007. Uh, and he, there he is in the Mexia State School, which is a supporting a supported living center where he's no. going to spend the rest of his life. No, no. He needs to be in prison. Yeah. Not only did he kill Esther, but he he fucked up the lives of two little girls. Yeah, exactly. Her, his sister's own children. And he's admit he, like he's admitting this to everybody. But old Jose, he's so, like, he's so childlike and innocent. He doesn't know any better. Clearly, he knows what he's doing. However, you're probably like, well, shit, if they got him eventually, what's the deal? How is this a cold case? Well, I'll tell you. Yeah, because that doesn't... You're right, actually. I forgot that this was a cold case. Esther's daughter learned that they have a partial print and blood from an unknown suspect that they cannot find a match for. So there is another person who is involved in Esther Broberg's murder. And due to the fact that they have no leads on who that person is, she is still an active case on APD's cold case homicide website. I just, I just know this is never going to get solved. And even if it does, even if they do find the person who the partial print belongs to, they're never going to fucking convict him. Yeah. Well, I mean, who knows how competent he might be? Yeah, right. You know, does he know how to spell his own name? Well, I don't know. He saw fucking uh, Jose Reyes stay out for a long ass time because he can't add four and five together. I mean, the fact that Jose Reyes didn't turn in this mystery man kind of shows that he is competent. Yeah, exactly. He obviously is like 
keeping this person, like, protected. I mean, if you know enough to know what you did was wrong to where you're confessing to the police. Yeah. That is such a frustrating case. It it really is. And And it just speaks to the fucking... It just speaks to our entire judicial Judicial system. system. Yeah. System, Like, people are never going to be able to to get justice for some of these. And it's ridiculous. And it's fucking sad. I mean, just like Raul... In Raul's case, Raul Meza Jr., like, the fucking judicial system failed us with him big time because they kept yeah. he they would catch him but then they just kept releasing him back into the fucking wild where he would kill more people yeah. texas really does not give a shit about anybody unless they're unborn and that's and oh, oh i mean are you not speaking the absolute truth i am so we were actually talking about this earlier and i was telling todd like my whole life, like, all I've heard is that Texas, like, they they love, you know, um, they love the old, like, capital murder. They love, like, they want to pin whatever on whoever. Mm-hmm. They want to keep you in prison for the longest time possible. They love the death penalty. Like, Texas is harsh on crime. No, they're fucking not. No, they're not. No, and they don't give a shit, like, newsflash, they don't give a shit about your children if they're letting a guy who confessed to molesting his own nieces live with them still after the confession. Yeah. They don't give a shit. Texas does not care about children at all. Exactly. They don't care. And they don't care about their, their people either. If anything ever happens to you violently, you're never going to get... No. ...the justice you deserve. Anyways... You ready to hear about mine? I am. So this is, so I know that we're doing these um, cold cases to kind of help get, you know, bring awareness and um, eventually like maybe it could, it could lead to somebody cracking a case or, or, you know, getting, getting the truth out. But this case is like less, it's probably not ever going to happen because this was, uh, this crime took place in 1946. This is like, yeah, this is like a 77, 78-year-old case. Um, and like, they just did not have the technology back then. Right. Um, I'm sure, too, uh, probably a lot of evidence was lost yes, during that time yeah. period. Yeah, I just wanted to talk about it because it's pretty interesting and there's a lot of information. Um, and I had never really heard about this case before. But apparently at the time it was, it was, a uh, it was a big, I mean, they had a movie made after it. The I don't town know that dreaded it. sundown. Yes. The town that dreaded sundown. I know what you're talking about. Yes. All right. Well, don't, we'll just pretend uh, like you don't. Okay. Okay. I've never heard of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to learn. Right. Good. I can't wait to to teach you oh slow (laughs) down mary Kay. (laughs) (laughs) side note women can have babies with other women by like a bone marrow yeah some cuts something to do with a bone marrow i heard that but it yeah but it would always be like a girl only girl babies yeah yeah i mean if that's not the solution to like our world issues i don't know what the fuck is i don't know either all right I just want our listeners to mull that over a little bit. Um, <laughs> just think about it. Yeah, just think about it. Um, in the late winter and spring of 1946, in and around the Texarkana region of Texas and Arkansas, there were four unsolved serial murders and related violent crimes that shook the residents of both towns to their core. So if anybody isn't aware of Texarkana, it's kind of like uh, like Kansas City, where there's a Kansas side and there's a Missouri side. Mm-hmm. With Texarkana, there's a Texas side and there's an Arkansas side. So, um, side note, uh, Quitman is like only like uh, an hour and a half from Texarkana. Texarkana, yeah. Yeah, my sister lives close to Texarkana yeah. too. I didn't realize that The Hills Have Eyes was a documentary, is all I have to say. Because <laughs> that's how I feel. Um, no offense to anybody who lives out there. 
These brutal and heinous crimes were attributed to an alleged unidentified serial killer known as the Phantom of Texarkana, Phantom Killer, and Phantom Slayer. The perpetrator remains unknown to this day and is credited with attacking eight people, five of which died in a 10-week period. This string of crimes would later be known as the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Um, the attacks occurred at night on weekends between February 22nd and May 3rd, targeting male-female pairs. The first three attacks were at lovers' lanes or quiet stretches of roads on the Texas side. The fourth attack occurred at an isolated farmhouse in Arkansas. The murders were reported nationally and internationally by several publications and caused a state of panic in Texarkana throughout the summer. Residents armed themselves and at dusk locked themselves indoors while police patrolled streets and neighborhoods. Stores sold out of guns, ammunitions, locks, and many other protective devices. Some youths attempted to bait and ambush the killer, which is super fucking dangerous, yeah. by the way. Like, Don't do that. That's why, no, and like, I think we all want to be, we all want to root for vi- vigilante justice, but like, in the end, it's just, it's so fucking dangerous. So, February 22nd was the first attack. Um, At around 11.45 p.m. on Friday, February 22nd, 1946, Jimmy Hollis, age 25, and his girlfriend, Mary Jeanne Larry, age 19, parked on a secluded road known as Lover's Lane after having seen a movie together. The area was approximately 300 feet from the last row of city homes where present-day Central Mall is located. Around 10 minutes later, a man wearing a white cloth mask, which resembled a pillowcase with eyes with eye holes cut out, appeared at Hollis's driver's side door and shone a flashlight in the window. Hollis told him he had the wrong person, to which the man responded, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Both Hollis and Larry were ordered out of the driver's side door, and the man ordered Hollis to take off his goddamn britches. After he complied, the man struck him in the head twice with a pistol. Larry later told investigators that the noise was so loud she had initially thought Hollis had been shot, but it was actually his skull being fractured. Jesus. Thinking Thinking the assailant wanted to rob them, Larry showed him Hollis's wallet to prove he had no money, after which she was struck with a blunt object. The assailant ordered her to stand, and when she did, told her to run. Initially, she tried to flee toward a ditch, but the assailant ordered her to run up the road. Larry spotted an old car parked off the road, but found it empty and was again confronted by the attacker, who asked her why she was running. When she said that he had told her to do so, he called her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. That's disgusting. Fucking insane. The The amount of psychological torture that would be. I know. Oh my god. After the assault, Larry fled on foot, running a half mile to a nearby house. She woke the residents of the house and phoned the police. Meanwhile, Hollis had regained consciousness and alerted a passing motorist who also called the police. Within 30 minutes, about 30 minutes. God, that's so long. Um, within 30 minutes, Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already left. Larry was hospitalized overnight for a minor head wound and Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from multiple skull fractures. Hollis and Larry gave differing reports of their attacker. Larry claimed that she could see under the mask that he was a light-skinned African-American. Hollis alternately claimed it was a tanned white man and around 30 years old, but conceded he could not distinguish his features as he had been blinded by by a flashlight. Both agreed that the assailant was around six feet tall. Law enforcement repeatedly challenged Larry's account and believed that she and Hollis knew the identity of their their attacker and were covering for him. Which is fucking crazy. Why would they cover for their attacker? Right, exactly. That's just how policemen thought back then. It's fucking weird. Everybody was a suspect. For real. All right, so March 21st, now this is our 
sorry, March 24th um, is the first double murder. So Richard L. Griffin, age 29, and his girlfriend of six weeks, Polly Ann Moore, age 17, were found dead in Griffin's car on the morning of Sunday, March 24th, 1946, by a passing motorist. The motorist saw the parked car on Lover's Lane, 100 yards south of U.S. Highway 67 West in Texas. The motorist at first thought that they were both asleep. Griffin was found between the front seats on his knees with his head resting on his, on his crossed hands and his pockets turned inside out. Moore was found sprawled face down in the back seat. There's evidence that suggests she was placed there after being killed on a blanket outside the car. Griffin had been shot twice while in the car. Both had been shot once in the back of the head and both were fully clothed. A blood-soaked patch of earth near the car suggested to police that they had been killed outside the car and placed back inside. Congealed blood was found covering the running board and it had flowed through the bottom of the car door. A 32 cartridge casing was also found, possibly ejected from a pistol wrapped in a blanket. Um, no, extent no extent reports indicate that either Griffin or Moore was examined by a pathologist. Contemporaneous local rumor said that Moore had been sexually assaulted, but modern re reports refute this claim. Really? Mm-hmm. So the person, like, staged them. That's really bizarre. Yeah. So on April 14th is the second double murder. Um, at around 1.30 a.m. on Sunday, April 14th, Paul Martin, age 17, picked up Betty Jo Booker, age 15, from a musical performance at the VFW Club at West 4th and Oak Street. Martin's body was found at around 6.30 a.m. later that morning, lying on, its lying on its left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. Blood was found on either side of the road by a fence. He had been shot four times through the nose, through the ribs from behind, in the right hand, and through the back of his neck. God, shot through the fucking nose? Yeah, I don't even... I, I don't even know. I don't even like bumping my nose with my hand. No, that was probably insanely painful. Booker's body was found by a search party at 11.30 a.m., almost two miles away from Martin's body. Her body was behind a tree and lying on its back, fully clothed. It was posed with the right hand in the pocket of the buttoned overcoat. Booker had been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. The weapon used was the same as in the first double murder, a 32 automatic Colt pistol. Martin's car was found about three miles from Booker's body and, and 1.5 miles away from his body. It was parked outside Spring Lake Park with the keys still in it. The authorities were not sure who was shot first. Sheriff Presley and Texas Ranger Captain Manuel Gonzalez said that the examinations of the bodies indicated they had both put up a terrific struggle. Martin's friend, Tom Albrighton, said that he did not believe an argument had happened between the victims and that Martin had not had any enemies. So that would kind of like, that would kind of dispute uh, what the first attack, how the police thought that they would know they knew their attacker. Right. That would kind of dispute that if these are all connected. Yeah, exactly. All right. So May 3rd is the fifth and uh, final murder. On Friday, May 3rd, sometime before 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, age 37, and his wife, Katie, age 36, were in their home on a 500-acre farm off of Highway 67 East, almost 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. He was sitting in an armchair reading the newspaper when he was shot twice in the back of, his, of the head from a closed double window. Hearing the sound of broken glass, Katie came from another room and saw Virgil stand up, then slump back into his chair. When she realized he was dead, she ran to the wall crank telephone to call the police. She rang twice before being shot in the face from the same window. 
She fell, but soon regained her footing and tried to get a pistol from another room. God, she was fucking hit twice in the face. I know, and gun. fucking still just like, gotta get my gun. I mean, God, we can't even walk without <clears throat> falling down. Um, she rang twice before being shot in the face. Uh, she fell, but soon regained her footing and tried to get a pistol from another room. She was blinded by her own blood. <sighs> she, I know, that's, God, that's gotta be so terrifying. Um, uh, she heard the killer at the back of the house and fled out the front door. She ran barefoot across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Because no one was home, she ran to a neighbor, A.V. Prodder's house, gasped, gasped that Virgil's dead, then collapsed. Oh. Prodder shot a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor, Elmer Taylor, who Prodder sent to collect his car. Taylor complied and, along with the Prater family, took Katie Starks to Michael Mager Hospital, now known as Miller County Health Unit. Starks was questioned in the operating room by Miller County Sheriff W.E. Davis, who became head of the investigation. Four days later, Davis talked with Starks again, and she discounted a circulating rumor that Virgil had, had heard a car outside their home several nights in a row and feared being killed. So that never happened. Really? Um, right. What, were they just, like, making shit up? I don't know. It kind of seems like it. And I'm not even sure how this is even connected. As far as, like, the fifth murder. Because that's not... I mean, the only thing that, that seems to be the same is that it was off of Highway 67. And that they were a married couple. Right. Or, like, a couple. couple. Like, it doesn't... Right. I mean, the way that they were even killed, I mean, besides being shot, is is so different. It seems yeah. less personal, right? Because right. he's, he's shooting. His, the first attack came from outside of outside the house. Outside and through the window. Right, right, right. Where in the other accounts, especially the first account, he was like right up in their face, you know, and spoke to them. Due to the popularity of the case, there were a number of false confessions investigated by both the Texas police and the Arkansas police. Throughout the investigations of the Phantom Killer case, almost 400 suspects were arrested, but there has been no convictions, and the cases of the Texarkana Moonlight murders remain unsolved. There were a couple, like, suspects that kind of, like, uh, stood out. One in particular was a guy named Uel Sweeney, and he actually was named and um, in a book that was written about the Moonlight Murders, and they think that this this guy was actually was actually the one who committed all the crimes. Really? Because yeah, so Uel Sweeney was a 29 year old car thief and counterfeiter. He was arrested in July uh, <coughs> by um, Detective Tackett who was on one of the cases at the time in 1946. Um, but he also was investigating car thefts after realizing that on the night of the Griffin Moore murders, a car had been stolen in the area and a previously stolen car had been found abandoned. So Tackett thought that, you know, this, this could possibly be um, a clue that the person whoever, whoever killed Griffin and Moore um, had previously, you know, had stolen that car. Right. So they automatically thought that Swinney was, was a good suspect in the murders. Um, Swinney's wife, Peggy, um, confessed in, a, in great detail that Swinney was the phantom killer and had killed Booker and Martin. Her story changed in some details across several interviews, and the police believed that she was withholding information due to fear of Swinney or of incriminating herself. Do we know um, how she knew? Like, so, did he confess to her or did she witness things? It doesn't say, it doesn't say exactly, um, because she did recant her confession. Mm. Um, and she was considered an unreliable witness. Okay. She also couldn't testify against her husband for some reason. Really? It says she could not be compelled to testify against her husband. Oh, okay. Yes. 
but here's the thing. Um, even though she had recanted her, her confession, law enforcement officers still worked for like six months to try figure out or try to validate um, Peggy's confession. Um, but they found out that on the night of the Booker Martin's murder, the Swinneys were sleeping in their car under a bridge near San Antonio, which is miles and miles away from Texarkana. Right. Um, so Swinney was actually never charged with the murder and was instead tried and imprisoned as a habitual offender for car theft. Um, but there is somebody, so there was a, like I said, there was a book that was written, um, and the author whose last name was Presley, um, reported that in his 2014 book that investigators in the Swinney case later said the sentence was effectively a plea bargain. Um, though the case files indicated no formal agreement. So apparently Swinney was concerned about being sentenced to death for the murders. So he agreed to not contest the habitual offender charge. And in fact, tried to plead guilty despite the charge requiring a jury trial. Their alibi in San Antonio, like that's, I mean, I don't know. That seems like that's pretty legit. I mean, that would be like a five hour drive. Yeah, and back then, probably even longer because cars didn't go as fast. Yeah, and you know the roads were shitty. Right. I don't even know. I don't yeah. even know if there like was a straight shot. I mean, there's 19, not a straight shot. Nineteen forty-six, right? Correct. Yeah. I'm like um, ho- imagining horse and buggies. <laughs> I know. <laughs> You're like the Amish. <laughs> yeah. So there were some there were some other people who confessed. There was a guy named H.B. Duty Tennyson. Um, Henry Booker Duty Tennyson was an 18-year-old university freshman who died by suicide on November 4th, 1948, leaving behind cryptic instructions which directed investigators to a suicide note in which Tennyson confessed to the Booker, Martin, and Stark's murder. He had played trombone in the same high school band as Booker, but they were not friends. Investigators were unable to find any other evidence linking Tennyson to the murders. Um, James Freeman, a friend of Tennyson, provided an alibi for the night of the Starks murders, um, stating that he had been playing cards that evening when they heard the news of the attack. Also, like, if Henry had done it, he would have been 16 at the time. So um, pretty young. Really young, yeah. For all of that. For all of that, correct. There was also another guy named Ralph B. Bowman, um, and he was a 21-year-old ex-Army Air Force machine gunner who had claimed to have awoken from a state of a, a fugue, fugue, which is a disassociative psychogenic um, phenomenon that so it's basically like amnesia. I have never um, heard of that. Me either. I don't know if that's even a thing anymore or if it's just a disassociation. Right. But he claimed to have woken from a fugue state of several weeks on the day of the Starks murder with his rifle missing. He said that he heard about a suspect matching his description and hitchhiked to Los Angeles feeling like he was running from murder. On May 23rd, he told Los Angeles police that he thought he might be the phantom. I'm my own suspect, he said. Oh. Police, arre- <laughs> yeah. police arrested him, but Gonzalez stated that the f- several parts of the man's story had little basis in fact. Bowman said that he had been discharged from the AAF for being a psychoneurotic, and he had previously confessed to killing three people in Texarkana in a period of three days, which did not match the timeline of the killing. Interesting. Um, yeah. So there's there's a ton of these. Um, there's about four, five more, but I'm not going to go into them. But those are probably the top three that I thought were pretty, pretty interesting. Um, no, those are interesting. So really, uh, they have no idea. They have no clue who did these you know, did these crimes and they may not ever know. I mean, obviously we probably won't ever know. And I'm not even sure that the last 
shooting was even connected, to be honest. It just doesn't seem related at all. No, and it's it's almost <clears throat> like the last murders, the last murders were like a, a crime of opportunity. Like they, whoever decided to shoot these people knew that the, you know, the police were on to a s- supposed serial killer and maybe like took advantage of that. You yeah. know what I mean? And just as far was as trying to get their own, like, might as well murder somebody while I can type of. Yeah. Or they might've, they might've had, you know, some kind of beef with, with that couple yeah. or, you know, and, and, and just decided that it would be an opportune time to, right. to, to get away with murder basically. I don't know but if, anyway. if you know this, but Texarkana, I don't want to say that they're proud of these murders, but um, it's definitely like a money-making opportunity for them. And they have every year around Halloween a screening, like a town screening of the town that dreaded sundown. Oh, on which side? On the Texas side or the yeah, Arkansas side? On the Texas side. Ugh, that doesn't surprise me. And there actually was a um, sequel, A Copycat Killer Comes Back to Texarkana at, like, God. during one of the screenings and starts killing people. I have so... Okay, I have I have a lot of problems with that. Number one, it's, it's kind of stupid that they're, like, capitalizing on these people's murders. Exactly. Number... But number two... I hate fucking sequels and they never are good. And I don't know why people insist on making Halloween 14, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for instance. Why? Why does it have to be more than just the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Honestly, I hear what you're saying, but like some sequels are very good. Like Ghostbusters 2. Okay. Way better than than the first one. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Honestly, you know what? Let's talk about this for a second. Um, okay. and, you can, and you can edit it out if you want to. Because I don't know. Like, I remember seeing it as a kid. It is literally Matthew McConaughey's best role ever, in my opinion. And whenever I'm telling people about this Texas Chainsaw Massacre, nobody fucking remembers it. And I showed it to Todd... And, like, it had a major impact on him. And I'm like, what? Why does nobody (laughs) remember this? But have you seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation, with Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey? No. Because I'll tell you why. I don't do sequels. You need to watch it. Allegedly, Matthew McConaughey doesn't even remember making it. He was so fucked up. (laughs) But well, that that doesn't surprise me. It is literally like you know how Matthew McConaughey just is Matthew McConaughey in every fucking role. This role is like it blows my mind. Like the acting is superb. So give this man as many drugs as he wants, and (laughs) let's stretch his abilities because I thought he did a damn good job. I love Matthew McConaughey. And you know what? You know who I love more than Matthew McConaughey, which is kind of crazy, and I didn't know I could even do this? Woody Harrelson. And I love that Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey are possibly related. That's what I hear. Honestly, like, not to be, not to hate, but Matthew McConaughey is boring as fuck to me. But that one role (laughs) that he has, uh, amazing. I didn't I didn't really care about him that much until until True Detective came out. Mhm. Um then I was like uh, hold up. Hold, drop drop what you're doing. Let's look at, at what this is going, you know, let's let's see what's happening here. And honestly, fucking loved him. Plus the whole possibly related to Woody Harrelson. If you're related to Woody Harrelson, even if you're standing next to Woody Harrelson, you're a little bit cooler. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's true. Woody Harrelson. I love that man. Oh, love him. Well, I think that, I think that's it. I think that concludes this episode for episode six. I think so. It was a long one. I think it was, it's a very long one, a lot of information, a lot of frustration, just another Sunday. Honestly.
It's true. It Say, la vie, man.